Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. This week, the province tabled legislation for ride hailing here in British Columbia. It's promising to bring in insurance products for these services by fall 2019, but we still have no definitive answer about when these services will actually be on BC roads. We're going to be discussing this issue with all of our guests today, starting with Ian Tossenson from the advocacy group Ride Sharing Now for BC. He's going to provide insights on what the business community thinks about these long delays. And later on, we'll continue the conversation with our weekly tech panel featuring Progressa CEO Ali Portad and Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Fakis. But let's begin with reaction from the business community. Joining us today is Ian Tossenson. He is president and CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. You may also recognize him as the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, great to have you back on this uh, show once again. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we're looking at insurance products by fall 2019. No firm date yet on when these services for ride hailing will be hitting the roads is this acceptable to the business community right now? Well, it's like anything, right, in business is that uh, business likes certainty. And this continues to be a very uncertain path that we follow. We were, we were really hoping that it'd be some concrete targets. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I was a firm belief that the premier would say, look, I want this by September 2019. I want to have, you know, uh, alternate forms of transportation, like ride hailing, in the, uh, you know, available. But, um, again, it's a big mystery. Um, it's it's now it's an insurance product that has to be developed by ICDC. My understanding is uh, that was done a long time ago when the Liberals were contemplating doing this. And um, and then there's some other things that you know we don't quite understand. You, you have the the Passenger Transportation uh, Board that wants to start uh, is, is they're saying that they will set rates, they will set the number of cars in the world, they will set geographic areas. If you think about that, you know, quite literally, it's almost like they're they're licensing another taxi scheme versus a system that relies on supply and demand driven by the consumer, not being driven by the you know the, the transportation board. So we're we're a little are we concerned? No, but it's going to be a lot of work here. I think I don't know that the government's quite understanding. I think they're trying to do uh, two things. They're trying to bring the service in but bring it in in a way that uh, satisfies the taxi industry. And I don't know that that is necessarily, um, you're going to, you kind of come out the other end as a winner. I mean, I, I can't imagine this service feeling like the Uber or the Lyft that we know from maybe our visits to other cities across North America. And, and, and I brought up your other credentials earlier on, you know, with the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, because yeah. you do have a long history in the hospitality sector. And I'm wondering what impacts this is going to have for a lot of, you know, tourists, for example, coming to Vancouver, and, and they're, they're going to have a very different experience than most people do with these services. Well, I, that's exactly right. I don't know why we wouldn't, you know, we should be trying to parallel and exceed service levels in other parts of the world to be competitive to bring tourists here. Um, you know, we should be we should be giving the confidence to our own domestic audience that, if you live in the North Shore, you want to go down to a downtown restaurant that you can actually, you know, go to an app and get a car and not used to be faced with, well, there's only so many cars in the area and that's the way it's going to be. I don't know how any board can make those determinations. And so 
Um, we know we're hoping that we can we can move this with the premier. I, I was just in a taxi cab, and he coincidentally happened to be an owner. And his his two issues were uh, safety, so you know requiring the same licensing, which is a class four commercial license. So that's quite workable, actually. I've seen it just like a few more hoops, and so it's a safety issue. The government talks about uh, safety; that's important. But um, you know, Uber and Lyft have very strict standards in terms of the safety and the criminal checks of the drivers. And so uh, that's number one. And then number two is the insurance. He said, as long as you're paying the same insurance. And the difference is, I mean, he, this gentleman uh, pays insurance 24 hours a, uh, a day on his taxi because it goes 24 hours a day. But a ride-hailing driver, they only pay when they drive. And I think that that's that what ICBC will do. That's the good news is that, you know, if you drive for, you know, an hour, you're only going to be paying commercial rates for an hour. So I think those things, uh, are workable, but I think it's just a whole restriction on, you know, um, I don't know how you would ever control that when you have uh, a system that relies a lot on part-time drivers. And if you decide to put your meter on the Uber driver for an hour, I don't know how the, the passenger transportation board is going to control that. So there's still a lot of questions to be answered. And I still think that we need to, you know, hold the government here to a way tighter timeline that's you know, I think what Andrew Weaver wants, and I agree with him, is applications for ride sharing that go in in the springtime and are approved for introduction in, in the fall of 2019. Yeah, when you hear from people that, you know, come to Vancouver to visit, uh, when you talk to, you know, people on business trips and they're needing to get around the city, I, I mean, what is the general sense that you get, this general sentiment that you get from a lot of these people that don't have access to transportation alternatives that are so widely available in other cities around the globe? Well, the comment yesterday, uh, this is associate human from Toronto, and then they, they waited for about 40 minutes to get a taxi out of the airport. So that's the first impressions. Yeah. And then coming from Toronto, where they do have ride uh, sharing, um, they don't understand that, right? It's just kind of like, what? And so that, that's a big mess. And, you know, I, I think that we're, um, I think the politicians are missing the fact that those are big impressions. And so now, if you're coming from Toronto and you're coming here, you've got to make a whole other you know, what they said, oh, should I get a limousine and a wizard Uber? And I tried my Uber thing and I just assumed it would be here, but it's not here. Those are just irritants. They're just in a, in a world of technology today, we shouldn't have to put people to thinking. It's the same thing, Shada, when they were talking about having their own app for taxis in D.C. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. Like, why would you have something different than the rest of the world? So, um, you know, I guess we're going to have to just keep working with the government, um, you know, trying to get them to move on some things here. Um, you know, it's just going to be, uh, you know, a little bit more sort of um, work with them and hopefully can move the needle a bit here. Yeah. And I'm not asking you to uh, drag on, uh, you know, anybody that you you work with in, in say, government, because I know that there's a lot of, you know, uh, back and forth that goes on. But I mean, how realistic the, do you think it is at this point where, you know, industry uh, businesses, they've been asking for a, a sped up process for a long, long time. And, and yeah. we still don't have kind of a clear view of when they'll literally be hitting the roads. They're now placing it on the transportation or the passenger transportation board to get those applications through. Yeah, I, you see, I, I, the system is kind of wrong. I, I think what we know, we need to have all the parties in the room. But, you know, the, the problem with the government is they've got, they've got the business community and the residents on one side wanting this, and they have the pressure from the tax industry. And they have this bureaucracy to the passing transportation board, and they sort of sit here and listen to three different parties or, or four. So the, the, what, the, what we've got to do is we've just got to all get to the table to find a solution that's in the best interest of British Columbia, not in the best interest of, you know, 
special groups. And um, I don't know if they'll do that. I don't know that they want to do that because I don't, you know, it, some people suggest that the government, this government is not really interested in bringing ride sharing in because of their um, loyalty to the taxi industry, which is a political thing. But, uh, you know, maybe if we see the taxi industry starting to be like my driver was this morning, a little bit encouraged that it seems to be going in a place that's not going to totally crash his business and he can be competitive because he was excited about the fact that he said by December 15th, they'll be able to pick up fares across municipal borders. So that's, he's happy about that. So he said, as long as I can compete in a fair basis, the question is, are we moving the ride hailing business like a taxi industry or is there another another model yet the government hasn't quite determined? And that's our job to show them that there's some middle ground here. Well, yeah, you bring up the fact that there will be changes moving forward with the taxi industry as well. And I think this is important. Uh, do you find that we are at least moving in the right direction of transportation alternatives if we do see some changes with regards mm-hmm. to taxis? We had the Dan Harrow report come out over the summer with a lot of recommendations. We're boosting numbers of taxis here yeah. in uh, across the province. Are we at least moving in the right direction with regards to taxis? I think so. Um, you know, the question is uh, with taxis, and, you know, and I think in fairness to taxis, you know, they're hamstrung a little bit because of the regulations they run under. I mean, they're very tight regulations. They have to have the cars inspect every six months. And, you know, if they're a commercial license, uh, they have to have a health check and all these different things. That's good for public safety. But, um, you know, will 300 taxi cabs in Vancouver make a difference? We're not going to see most of them by Christmas season, which is a concern for the hospitality industry. So we're, we're going to have the same sort of, you know, bad service, if you will, for transportation in general uh, for this Christmas or this this um, this season, but the holiday season. Um, so I think we are moving in the direction. And I'm just thinking about it today. I think as we take steps forward and we look at the Hera report, who did, by the way, suggest that we shouldn't have limits on uh, on 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 the number of cars on the road and let the, the market determine it. I think the government, because this is only the legislation, so there's a lot of room for us now to uh, to affect the regulations in terms of how this works. And uh, if we keep our wits about us, I think the government will listen to us. And, you know, hey, listen, we're, all we're trying to do here is, um, is get people, move them quicker, move them faster, uh, be good to the business community, be good to our tourism industry. So there's no ill will here on any part. And I think the government's going to understand that we're all coming from a good place here. And, uh, and it's certainly not wanting to see a harmful effect of taxi industry either, but rather let the taxi industry be competitive. Well, last question before we let you go, Ian. If we're able to look to the future and envision a future with ride hailing and a lot more taxis operating within this region, what do you think that means for the economy? What do you think that means for opening up a lot of the opportunities, getting, like you said, a, a better Christmas season going as people have more options to get around the city? Um, tell me about where you think the future is going to lead us with regards to this. Well, this is a really interesting thing. There's a company that's just started up. Or not, well, they've been around for a while called Parcelpel. I just, ouch, I think what they're doing is amazing. And uh, I've worked done a little bit of work with them, and, and they just they, their whole thing is we'll get and we'll pick up anything for you anytime. So if you don't feel like driving across town and going to pick it up, you can actually go on. They'll they'll, they'll go shop for you, do whatever, and bring it to you. So there's because people are getting you know they're getting tired of sitting in traffic. There's the future of driverless cars, which is going to have a massive impact in all this. And I I keep sort of jokingly saying that it's just a matter of time we're, we're going to forget the whole ride-hailing thing and have drive, we'll go right to driverless cars to take us so long to do this. But in, in the immediate side, 
if we can get people, you know, into restaurants, home safe. Uh, here's a, you know, what, what really affects our industry is the ability for us to move workers so they don't have to live in the downtown core. They can live in the suburbs and but work in the downtown core because they've got easy, affordable access to transportation, which isn't the way right now because of the way the taxi industry is licensed. So the, this, the ability to move people and uh, allow them more flexibility where they live will make a real impact. Um, you know, in our case, uh, with an industry with a severe labor shortage right now, um, we saw in Coquitlam when uh, one of the transportation lines went up in Coquitlam, it was a Tim Hortons actually, and they were having trouble getting people. And when the transportation line came in, it, it ended that because they were able to access workers from different vantage points, like from Surrey and, and, and et cetera. So uh, transportation is critical. And the sooner we get on with smoothing this out, uh, we, we will see the benefits for sure, Tyler. Uh, you know, Ian, we're totally on the same page when it comes to autonomous vehicles, but I think that's another uh, discussion we'll have to leave for another time. But uh, <laughs> there's so much, yeah, it's so much in there we can get into. But I'm with you. But yeah. I, I want to thank you for yeah. joining us on the show today. Hey, listen, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tyler. Excellent. That's Ian Tossison, President and CEO of Ride Sharing Now for BC. Stay with us. We're going to continue our discussion about ride hailing with our technology panel. That's coming up next. And joining us today on the weekly BIV Tech panel, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progresso. He's calling in from Toronto today. And we also have with us in studio, it's Linda Fawkes. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society. Linda, Ali, thanks for joining us today, guys. Hi, Tyler. Thank you. So why don't we just get right to it? Ride hailing, we got uh, what the government was telling us over the weekend would be a, an announcement that we'd all want to hear. They're tabling legislation, and we find out on Monday that uh, insurance products will be available in fall of 2019. Still no word yet on when these services will actually be hitting the roads. The government seems to think maybe fall 2019, but they're putting the ball in the court of the Passenger Transportation Board, the regulator at this point. They say it'll be up to them to approve these. Linda, from your perspective, I, is this acceptable to you with regards to, I guess, the demand for this service that people have been calling for, even in terms of just being competitive here in British Columbia versus other jurisdictions where we see a lot of business development? It depends on transportation needs, especially from people visiting. It is not acceptable that we are the largest North American city without ride hailing, ride sharing. Um, the fact that this is now going to take ICBC a year to figure out the insurance products when this has been on the radar for many years, yeah. not acceptable again. And Ali, you're in Toronto. I, I know for a fact that uh, you have used ride hailing over there. What what do you make of this this delay tactic that we constantly see from the BC government here? And it's not just the, the current government. We had it from the BC Liberals as well. I, I just don't know how we can wrap our heads around it at this point. Yeah, I, it's very frustrating, Tyler, Linda. I, I mean, I just I cannot be more frustrated by this. It, it, I mean, leave it to the BC government to just create problems out of thin air. I mean, just when you think, okay, they're they're going to announce ride hailing, great, let's get going, let's let's have it live by January. Now it's going to take another full year, and and they're creating pro- they're creating problems out of thin air. I mean, what is so special about our government and where we live in BC that the rest of the modern world and even many parts of the third world can figure out the problems, <laughs> the solutions to these problems. But we cannot, we cannot get this released in a matter of weeks or months. It has to take 10, year, 10 years to get out the door. I like that the government I, threw ICBC under the bus on that. 
<laughs> it's ICBC's exactly. problem. They haven't figured it out just until they blame, do. We can't do another, anything. Yeah, just blame another department in the in the government. Really, that's what they're doing. It's crazy. Well, I mean, hopefully, uh, young young individuals in our province are are feeling the same frustration as, as I am. I, I'm I'm not going to put myself in the young category anymore, but I hope that <laughs> people are you know, really starting to rethink just how government works. Like I know, obviously, in the U.S., we, we, we have our eyes and ears on that all the time. You can see it very, very prevalently, what's happening down there. But I think in Canada, we really need to take a hard look at how our government works. And people need to start stepping up and, and being uh, agents of change, because this is just getting insane. I, I wondered, though, and what do you each think the likelihood is that maybe we're going to avoid a lot of, I guess, that, that trial by fire that other jurisdictions experience, though? I, or do you think this commitment to getting it right, as the government keeps saying, I, is that just kind of smoke and mirrors at this point? It doesn't really add up to anything other than just kind of a delay tactic? Or do you think that maybe this is going to be a smoother transition, Linda, than what we saw in a lot of other cities across the globe? I didn't even know the Passenger Transportation Board existed till I read about this. And okay. I'm, I'm quite horrified about the control they could have over this process, the pricing, the boundaries, the number of cars. I wonder, are we going to have surge pricing on our taxis if, if they're in, in control of the overall pricing strategy? So it looks to me like government's trying to reinvent a wheel that uh, some very smart startup companies have invented and the market is uh, refining. So I don't think it's going to be a good thing with our government uh, getting in the loop. And I, I can't believe BC will come out with a better solution to this very complicated and necessary technology. Yeah, Ali, do yeah. you think there, yeah. BC has somehow figured something out that other jurisdictions just kept messing up for the first you know, 10 years of this? I, I, look, every municipality that I have sat in an Uber all across North America in, it runs very effectively and smoothly. And was there problems in the very beginning? Yes, but those problems did not last very long. They got smoothed over quite quickly. People adapted very fast, the cities and the drivers. And uh, life has gone on and made life and it's made life, uh, you know, more affordable for those municipalities and the people and the citizens of those of those cities. It's made life more efficient for those citizens. I mean, we are the only only municipality in North America of our size and scope that does not have Uber. I mean, that says a lot. And and to answer your question, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the. Uh, the skeptical person here, but it maybe maybe it is smoke and mirrors. I mean, maybe it's just a delay tactic, and they're going to blame the BC Liquor Board in 12 months because they don't have the proper drinking and driving rules around it next. I mean, yeah. this could just go on forever. I also have a, a sinking suspicion that the Uber and the Lyft that we get here in British Columbia, it's not going to quite feel the same or function the same as what it is in other jurisdictions. And do you think that's going to be to BC's detriment, Linda, or do you think you know, the, the government simply wants a, a very distinctly BC version of this. I think this is going to be a BC flavor of Uber and Lyft, and it will be to our detriment. It's not going to work. It doesn't look to me like it's going to work as um, functionally as it does in all the other cities in the world that use this technology. We're going to have some restrictions and rules in place that will not make it flow uh, the way it, it does and could and will make it less adaptable to market desires. I don't think it's going to be a good thing that the government's rolling out this the way it is. And and the fact that ICBC uh, needs to spend any more time, as Ali said, why are they spending more time figuring out the insurance piece? Let's let's go, people. Yeah, Ali, I mean, uh, for you know people like you, me, Linda, who have maybe gone to other cities and used Uber there, do you think we're going to be spoiled to a certain degree versus other British Columbians that maybe not 
are, are totally aware of how it really works in other jurisdictions? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there who are just clueless, and maybe that is why uh, the there hasn't been an uprising by now. I mean, I feel sure. like there's probably a lot of people with their blinders on here, um, and those people are probably very, uh, uh, you know, isolated the pockets of our province uh, that um, are obviously have have the same similar political motivations as well, and it's just it's delayed, it's delayed and delayed this far too long, and it's uh, it truly is at the detriment of the of the mass market. So it's truly at the detriment of everybody. And, and, and I, you know, a customized solution, uh, although it sounds great on, on, on paper, we're going to have a BC customized solution. To, I, I have to agree with, with Linda's point. It's not what, it's not the spirit of what Uber is. The, the spirit of what Uber is and what it's trying to solve the problems that these large tech companies have gone and understood very well in all the cities all over the world. They're for trying to solve those problems on a mass scale. You can't, you know, customizing it for a city. It, it really does defeat the purpose um, of the of the market driven technology that they've created. So yeah, and Uber we'll see, and Lyft. It's very frustrating. Yeah, and Uber and Lyft duking it out have made them each better um, players in the market. So that's what we need to see: is the market fighting exactly. through this, not the government telling them what to do. So why don't we transition from one controversial technology topic to another and, and talk a little bit about Facebook. Uh, the New York Times had a 5,000-word story going in-depth to, I guess, how top executives, including CEO Mark Zuckerberg and COO Sheryl Sandberg, their responses to the various crises that they've been facing the last two years. Very damning stuff in there about everything from Russia to Cambridge Analytica. And, and I wonder if maybe this calls into question, you know, Facebook's corporate governance. I mean, there seems to be so little oversight over a company that is so influential on everybody's day-to-day lives. And I look, it's a private company. That There's regulations that uh, you, you can't really get into. But I, I wonder for your, from your perspective, Linda, does Facebook need a bit of a shakeup for it, it to stop from becoming like kind of this crystallized, monolithic kind of animal that can't ever really be changed? Yes, they need a shakeup. Mr. Zuckerberg controls 60% of his company and he's not going anywhere. Yep. Uh, that's This is his baby. It's a live or die situation for him. Uh, I'm concerned that the 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 adult in the room, we used to call that uh, person Sheryl Sandberg, but it's Alex Stamos, as it turns out, the chief security officer who brought this to the attention of his bosses and the board. He left and that vacant, that position is vacant. I think that we need a shake up at Facebook. They need to figure it out, get out of their algorithm machine mindset and understand that it's humans that got them into this problem. And they need to get some real solutions to get them out of it. Or we're going to see Facebook at its AOL tipping point. Yeah, and it, it will slide down and disappear, perhaps. It was fascinating to me because this article reveals that uh, Stamos brought these problems to his bosses and it seemed as if they were mad at him. Like, they, like you shouldn't be looking into this sort of stuff. You know, leave it to the government if you're looking at Russian interference. I, I mean, is this really kind of a corporate culture, alley that you think is going to be progressive that you think is really going to be in it for the long haul and really understanding what its place is as an influencer across the globe? I, no, I, I, I actually think this is the single vulnerability, uh, Tyler, that all of these companies have, that they all share and that it could be the difference that, that, that that's between, you know, what they have in front of them now and, and what's not going to be in front of them. I mean, they, this literally 
could get big enough to shut down a Facebook. It, it, it has the it has the sheer potential of, you know, if you play out all of the, the the stories and if you play out all of the sequence, it has the potential for governments to just say, sorry, Facebook, you cannot operate in our walls. And and I think Mark Zuckerberg has to take a, you know, he, they need to have sort of a, a, a retrospective here where they really just sort of thousand foot in the sky and look at themselves and understand some of the sort of existential risks that may exist over a business like Facebook. I, I actually think they're in a much more vulnerable slot than, than they may, may or may not know. Uh, I don't I don't fully agree with, with Linda's point. I don't know. I don't know if Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg is safe. And, I, and I'll tell you, a lot of companies outgrow their founders, even if they're controlling uh, shareholders, you know, once they go public, they, they have a responsibility to a, a broader number of investors and retail investors. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, this is his first billion dollar business, multi-billion dollar business. It's not like he's run multi-billion dollar corporations before. It's not like he has a background in risk management and, uh, and uh, enterprise risk and, and, and all, of the, all of the risks that, that uh, Facebook is creating. And the recent track record that uh, that that uh, I mean, we just talked about Alex Amos leaving leaving Facebook and and the reaction he received when when uh, when uh, identifying risks uh, to his to his uh, superiors. It's it's not that's just not sustainable. You you cannot operate a large corporation like that. The corporation has its tentacles in too many. It has too many stakeholders, and I'm not just talking about. The general public. I'm I'm talking much broader than that. It's the eighth largest corporation on the planet at one last count, and Zuckerberg runs it as a one um, one man shop. He controls all the decisions. The board can lean on him as much as they like to say, "Would you step down as chair? Would you please consider getting some more help?" And he can say, "Yeah, no, thank you for your suggestion, yeah. but we're going to continue to do it as is, and here's my plan for moving forward." So it's a impossible position for shareholders they can't affect any change with their votes because he controls all the votes well people people have been talking about him running for for president uh before and i know people have joked about that uh, but he does have a, a a large sort of positive uh following around him as well especially with that sort of millennial uh crowd now i know he's he's starting to lose a certain portion of millennials i know a lot of uh age groups are actually falling off facebook so i'll be eager to see if he can sort of hold that positive, uh, I think on average, the majority of people support him. I would be interested to see if this the timing of all of this works out in a way where he where he leaves Facebook and maybe goes into politics or something else where he could leverage his name, uh, you know, in other ways to give back. Uh, I could I could see it happening, not because of of the, the of the political pressures, but I actually can see it happening because what's happening at Facebook. I actually I actually think. He may just run run his course and and decide you know what let's bring in somebody with more more experience to take it to the next level from here and that does does happen with corporations and my look in the crystal ball says he stays uh, for the foreseeable future and someone like Cheryl Sandberg's job gets pieced up or uh, people added to complement what she's doing because she was in charge of the post Cambridge Analytica reputation rebuild and that didn't mm-hmm. go so well. Uh, no, uh, Zuckerberg can yeah, clearly look at her and say that was a bad plan. Uh, and I think that perhaps that's where we'll see some big changes in Facebook executive. I honestly can't see a world in which Zuckerberg's not in charge of Facebook. Maybe it breaks itself up into an alphabet style 
uh, company and we look at Instagram and WhatsApp and, and Oculus becoming uh, bigger players in Facebook's revenue stream. But I can't see Zuckerberg moving away from this, even to be president of the United States. Well, as we dish out our, our burning critiques of Facebook, I just want to encourage all of our listeners to go to uh, facebook.com slash BIV news. Uh, you, you can find all of our stories there. So I uh, appreciate that listeners. But uh, in the meantime, uh, Linda, Ali, I want to thank both of you guys for joining us on the show. Thank you. That's uh, Perfect. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa and Linda Focus, CEO of Glue Technology Society. And that's it for BIV today. We'll be back tomorrow. And you can find our archives on iTunes or Stitcher. So tell your friends to subscribe. And as always, go to BIV.com for our news stories or Facebook.com slash BIV news as well. I, I, I kid a little bit, but uh, you know what? Everybody finds it there.